0: All right, y'all. How you doing? Y'all awake? Y'all caffeinated? There's caffeine over here if you need it. So I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors, and we are in the middle of a five-week series called Image Bearers, talking about God's glory on display in the life of his people. And if you don't get anything else in the month of May, and it's okay if you don't. We're scatterbrained. We're busy people. If you don't get anything else in the month of May, we want you to get this out of what we're talking about. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, even that thing, your story fits into God's big story. It absolutely does. That person that you're thinking about, how does their story fit into God's big story? Like everybody goes to like baby Hitler. Like how would that work in this situation? Every single person that has ever lived, including baby Hitler, (laughs) made in the image of God, Fitting into God's big story. So no matter where you are or how much shame is in your life or no matter how much confidence you have in your own abilities, your story is real, but it fits into a bigger story. A more beautiful story. The most beautiful story that's ever been told. And the story that we're wrapping up this week in the book of Ruth also fits into that big, beautiful story. So last week we talked about Ruth and Naomi. Two widows that became refugees, sojourners, and how God cared for them, and how God met them in a time of acute need, and how they stepped out in faith because they trusted that God really was who He said He was. And this week, we're going to pivot and talk about Ruth and Boaz. So, like we said last week, Ruth is one of the best short stories that has ever been told. And We are people, humans are people that are not primarily wired to just love statistics. I mean, some of y'all just love like, give me an Excel spreadsheet and like, okay, (laughs) good for y'all. But like most of us, God has hardwired to really resonate with a good story. And some stories are so good that you just want to watch them over and over and over. And you don't need subtitles and you really don't even need the sound on because you know every line, but you love it and you just want to see it play out over and over again. Like if you have kids, like as a 90s kid, I had certain Disney VHS tapes that like would stop working after a while because every day I wanted to watch Aladdin and like sing all the songs and stuff. So many stories are so good that you just never want to stop. So some of you like action movies. How many of y'all love a good action movie? Yeah? And you can define that however you want to. Marvel movies, DC movies, Liam Neeson movies, you know, flavor of the week, whatever you want. I mean, just last week, sometimes I get on uh, YouTube and I watch trailers for movies that are coming up. And so last week, I'm watching a trailer, and there's this, like, secret agent woman, and she's, like, hand-to-hand combating with everybody, and Jill was like, Wouldn't you hate to be the person that has to, like, clean up after that fight scene? Like, do you see all that broken glass and, like, blood and stuff? And I'm like, yeah, that's why I want to see it. (laughs) So some of y'all like that. That's not really her thing. Um, Some of y'all like documentaries. You're just really curious about the world. Or maybe, like, you have insomnia and you're watching a (laughs) documentary. Or maybe you just really, like, love the voice of, like, David Attenborough, like, Walking through planet Earth and doing that kind of thing. Maybe you're a nerd like me. I love that kind of stuff. But some of y'all love a good love story, right? How many of y'all love a good love story? Anybody? I know like 60% of y'all are too ashamed to actually raise your hand because I'm like that too. I'm like, yeah, you can watch that. That's fine. I'm just going to be over here on my, on my phone. Oh my gosh, this is really good. And then I like get sucked into it. One of Jill's favorite movies is You've Got Mail, and there's like a time of the year she's like got to pull it out and watch You've Got Mail, and I'm like, this is the most oh, beautiful movie <laughs> ever, <laughs> because there's just something about a love story that can suck you right in, and the book of Ruth is a love story. It's so much more than that. Ruth is a story of redemption. Ruth is a, like, a, like a road trip story in a sense, like a story of pilgrimage and development, Um, finding your place in the world and being an outsider. But Ruth is definitely not less than a love story. And the talk that we're going to have today is about the beautiful developing romance of Ruth and Boaz. So we're going to do the equivalent of popping the DVD in and watching this romance unfold and seeing the character of God in the way that this love story plays out. Because primarily our relationship with God is about this satisfied joy that's developing from us to the Lord too. We're going to see parallels all over the place. We're going to see the beauty of Ruth and Boaz on its own just as a wonderful story, and we're also going to see how we fit into this story and God's big story at the same time. So if you don't get anything else from today, the main point is we have hope because we have a Redeemer. That's it. Because we have a Redeemer, we can have hope. Even though it doesn't seem like it, we can rely on that and remember that we can put one foot in front of the other, just like Ruth did. So we'll see, we have hope because we have a Redeemer, and it'll play out in three parts, which I'm thinking are like three acts of the story. So number one, we're going to see a warm welcome that Boaz gives to Ruth. Number two, we're going to see a midnight proposal from Ruth. That's where it gets juicy. It's the good stuff. It's the part that you skip to in the DVD. Do people even watch DVDs anymore? I date myself every week I get up here. DVDs, DVD players. And so a midnight proposal from Ruth. And third, we'll see a faithful redeemer that looks a heck of a lot like Jesus. So let's jump into this story. And we're going to be covering Ruth's chapter 2, 3, and 4. So it's going to kind of be like... A bus tour, but you're on the interstate, so, like, just keep up. So, a warm welcome. Turn to chapter 2 of Ruth, and we're going to see how there's a pivot in the narrative. So, last week, we covered all of chapter 1, and chapter 1 centered around three women, Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah. And in chapter 2, we get introduced to a new character named Boaz. So, let's read chapter 2, verse 1. who was, like we just said, it's important, we're saying it twice, of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. You may have heard of her. She said, "'Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves "'after the reapers.' So she came, and she has continued "'from early morning until now, "'except for a short rest.' Then Boaz said to Ruth, "'Now, listen, my daughter, "'do not go to glean in another field, "'or leave this one, "'but keep close to my young women.' Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So that's our snippet for right now, and we're seeing this... Do I have your attention? Do you want me to change to the handheld? That's totally fine. Okay. So this is our first little section in the, in the book of Ruth that we're seeing Boaz and Ruth... Meet. And so we're going to look at some markers of Boaz, just who he is, and some markers of how he's interacting with Ruth that are going to flesh out in the remainder of the story. So, verse 1 tells us the first time that Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech. So, you'll remember if you were here last week, Elimelech was the main man, the patriarch in Ruth's family line. And so, the fact that Boaz is in that family means that he is legally related to Naomi and Ruth, obviously, and he's able to be involved in their story in a pivotal way. Uh, they call it a kinsman redeemer. So just like put a pin in that, and we'll come back to it. And the text says, not only is he in the right family, but he's a worthy man. And so the word worthy there has like cultural connotations, and some folks have even described whenever it says Boaz is worthy, it means two things. He's marked by wealth, and he's marked by integrity. So moral worth, material wealth. He's a guy that fits the job description of Kinsman Redeemer. Not only is he like technically able to do this thing, he's going to be a kick-butt candidate to actually perform an action and to, to play a role in their lives in a way that is super crucial. So not only who is Boaz, because they're basically saying, pay attention to this guy. You know how sometimes you're reading through the Old Testament, and they're like, you had this guy, and this guy gave, you know, this guy had a son named this guy, and this guy had a son named this guy, and then all of a sudden it like stops and says, hey, this is this guy's name, and they tell you a story about him, because this is a person that is pivotal to the story, so we're slowing down to look at him. The text is doing that with Boaz, it's saying Slow down and see the kind of man that God has made, Boaz, and give grace and praise to God for the fact that he's a worthy man. It's almost setting you up for the fact that there's a love story coming. It's almost like you can hear that 90s song, What a man, what a man, what a man. You know that song? Like, you can see him from a distance. Here he is. He's coming. I know. I'm just trying to keep you involved here. So notice how he goes out of his way to make sure that she's provided for in verses 4 through 6. We don't have to read the whole thing again, but he says he asks his people about her, and then once he hears about her, he actually offers her provision and protection. So he says, yes, take more than what's legally allotted for you in my field, because as an outsider— There were certain things, leftovers from the field, basically, that were available for her if she wanted them. If she wanted food, she could come back behind the folks that were reaping, and she could pick up what was left there, and then if she could gather enough, it was free to her. So Boaz knew that part of the law, and Boaz said, I'll do you one better. Let's make sure that you have what you need. You get in there, and you work as much as you want, and when you get thirsty, come in and drink around the water cooler. That's totally fine. He offers her provision in a way that wasn't even necessary, but then he offers her protection at the same time. So Ruth, putting herself out there like that to provide for herself and her mother-in-law, she knew that there was danger involved. Being in a workplace like this, there was potential hostility. There was potential even harassment and violence that could happen to her, and she knew that, and Boaz knew that. And so he goes out of his way to say, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So in the era of the judges, when the, the book of Ruth is going down, Israel is in a place where the, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. It's a sketchy time to be a woman, and it's a sketchy place to put yourself in as a woman. And Boaz offers her protection that he doesn't even have to. He goes out of his way to say, Don't touch her. He's generous to her. And that reflects back to the character of God. And it doesn't just accidentally do that either. Because as Boaz reaches out to her with generosity, he verbally shows her that I'm being generous because I'm made in the image of God. And this generosity isn't just because I want you to think I'm nice. I'm generous because I love the Lord and I want to be like him. So let's look... In verses 10, to her response to the generosity and Boaz overflowing with being a godly man. Verse 10, Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes? Why should you take notice of me since I'm a foreigner, since I'm an outsider? Have you ever felt like an outsider? And Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. And may a full reward be given you by the Lord. And here's what he thinks about God. May a full reward be given to you by the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Isn't that a beautiful image? Needing refuge, needing security, and knowing that God is willing to shelter you. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And so nobody was putting up a front here. Everything was right there. Ruth was obviously, she needed help. And Boaz didn't say, yeah, girl, I got you. He said, God will shelter you. And I'm willing to be a channel of blessing so that you know that God will protect you. It's so beautiful. So, she was over the top in the generosity there. Here's a few things. He takes notice of her. He honors her risk-taking faith. We saw that. You're doing something that's worthy and and humble, and I want to honor that. I don't want to skip over that. He appreciates how she cares for Naomi, and then he asks this blessing over her and comforts her. He approaches her with compassion, knowing that she's made in the image of God, even though she's not from here, probably looks different, probably speaks with an accent if she can speak the language at all. And he says, even though this is not an easy interaction, and you have an amount of need that might even make me uncomfortable, how can I even start to help you? I'm going to move to you first with compassion. I know that the Lord cares for you. And even though I don't even know how I'm going to be involved yet, my heart is moved for you, just like the heart of God is. Boaz is being an image bearer in that moment. So he welcomes her as an outsider and treats her with kindness. Simple stuff like that is what image bearing looks like. It doesn't have to be like this 12-step plan, and you have to be a great project manager, and you have to have like all these Like, this big budget for, like, image bearer with all these zeros behind it. Like, Pastor Chris said this morning, most opportunities to serve people are informal opportunities and they're relational opportunities. And we have to say in the moment, will God meet me there and provide for me if I just obey him when I feel the Lord leading me to? So when I look at Boaz, I see somebody just leaning into the leading of God and saying, I don't know how God's going to use me yet, but I'm willing to be used by God. And boy, does he get used by God. So not only does Boaz share his field with Ruth, he shares his table with Ruth. So let's keep reading. Verse 14 says, At mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, Come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. He's even like showing her what table manners look like in a new place because she's probably embarrassed. She doesn't know how it goes around here. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. So he's being over the top generous again. You ever come to someone's house and they have like You know, like a pack of saltine crackers out. And you're like, well, thanks, but I'm going to get Chick-fil-A on the way home now. (laughs) Like, he's not like that. He's being over the top in the way he's providing for her. So verse 15 says, When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, opening up a new part of the field to her, continuing to be even more generous than he was before. And do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, And leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Literally, like, as you're working, just, like, go ahead and open up your wallet and just, like, leave dollar bills on the ground so that she can pick them up. Like, what kind of over-the-top generosity is this? Just flowing from Boaz. Why? Where? How is he doing this? But we see that he's being used by God. Notice how he lavishes resources on her, and he shares more than resources He shares attention. He shares company. And this is a model for us, I would say. Believers, we should be marked by two things. If we're really transformed by the Lord, if we're really saying, God, how are you going to use me? If we're really saying, I don't really know what my giftings are. I don't know how I fit here yet. What does serving the church look like at Haterstown Church? It doesn't have to be complicated. It could be You're marked, your life, your home, your family is marked by having a worn-out Bible. What does God say for me? What does my life look like? How do I meet God? I meet him in the scriptures, so my Bible is worn out. And then also, just having a worn-out dinner table. Who can I sacrifice for? Who can I welcome into my home? Who can I be sharing life with? And it doesn't have to be a production, and my home doesn't have to be perfect, and the throw pillows can be out of place, and you can have need to... Have vacuumed, and then you're just kind of embarrassed when they come over, and that's okay because you're just sharing what God has given you with them. I think that's what Boaz is doing here. He's saying just come on into the break room. It's fine. Sorry for the mess, but you can be part of us. As an outsider, you have a place at our table, and that's a picture of God's adopting love. That's a picture of God's compassion for us. That can go so far. If you don't think you have the words to say, one, study the scriptures. The word matters. Ask a friend. But three, just start with compassion and just see where that takes you. So she ate with the crew. She feels like part of the team. And all throughout Ruth chapter two, we're seeing Boaz as an example of a just man. What a man, what a man. He just embodies that picture that we see throughout the scriptures of a man of justice. Because we know when God changes our lives, when God justifies us, our hearts will overflow in thankfulness to him and in concern that others receive justice at the same time. How can I pour out what God's given me to make sure that I can see justice happen in other people's lives and hearts? Boaz reminds me a lot of a passage in Psalm 122, and it's not going to be on the screen, and I'm just going to read a few select verses, but here's a profile from the Psalms of a man that cares about justice, and ultimately they're saying Jesus is a man that sounds like this, and so is Boaz. "'Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in God's commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land, and the generation of the upright will be blessed.'" It is well with the man who deals generously and lends and conducts his affairs with justice. This kind of man has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And his family is exalted in honor. So God is blessing the person who's giving sacrificially. And not just giving money, but giving his compassion, his attention, his time, his care, and putting himself out there. Because that's what the Lord calls us to do. And even more than Boaz cares for Ruth, how well does God care for us? Amen? So we see a warm welcome from Boaz, a disarming welcome, really. And then we see a midnight proposal from Ruth, chapter three. And the next series of events here happens starting in the evening after you get home from work. And after your face is all greasy and you don't want to see anybody and you just want to like pop something in the microwave and watch Netflix, like at the end of the day, right before bed, a plan gets hatched by Naomi. And then the rest of these events stretch through the night and into the morning. And by the time the sun comes up, things are totally different for Naomi, Ruth, and even Boaz. A lot could go wrong too. There's a lot that's kind of bold and kind of risky and from the outside. Maybe even looking a little foolish, but God's all over this. And it's kind of the beating heart of of the romance here. So it's a suspenseful evening. And I think we should just read this chapter and just let the scene unfold and then kind of like see the things afterwards. So let's start in chapter 3, verse 1. So as we're reading... To see these three things as they happen. Number one, Naomi devises a plan for Ruth and for Ruth to get a husband. Number two, Ruth sneaks effectively into Boaz's bedroom where he's sleeping, not really his bedroom, and she proposes to him, even though that's not the culture. And number three, Boaz responds in the middle of the night, being woken up uh, with a beautiful promise to Ruth. Okay, so verse 1 of Ruth chapter 3 says, then Naomi... Her mother-in-law said to her, "My daughter, should I not sit and rest with you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Here's the advice. Ruth, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking." But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, uh, no, she replied with boldness and said, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet, and she laid down. And at midnight, when the man, uh, the man got startled, and he rolled over, and behold, there's a woman at his feet. And he said, Who are you? Probably because it was dark. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you're a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, don't fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer, but there is a redeemer nearer than I. If you'll remain tonight, and then in the morning, if he'll redeem you good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So would you lie down until the morning? And then verse 14 kind of rounds it out. says, so she did lay at his feet until morning, but then she arose before they even could like recognize one another. And Boaz said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor and he kind of helped her make a tactful exit from this scene. So a couple of points to draw out from this passage because it's like suspenseful and you can see a whole lot of alternate endings that are not as beautiful, but the way that it unfolds is just a beautiful testimony to what God's doing in Ruth's life. So here's a couple things that I want you to see. Number one, even though This story is all about God's providence for people, God's unlikely provision in a land where there's not a lot of resources. Even though this story is all about God's sovereignty and God's provision, you don't see people marked by being passive in this story. You don't see people just waiting around for God to drop the future into their lap. Even though they know that God is sovereign, they're pushing, they're working, they're they're going to bed tired at the end of the day. Naomi doesn't just say, hey, Ruth, come over here. Let's just like pray really hard and hope that Boaz kind of like figures it out because you like give him a look and then he like kind of gives you this look and then like you go back and you pray again. Ruth, Naomi is not playing that game and Naomi trusts that God will provide. But at the same time, she says, let's make a plan. Let's pursue God's provision and trust that he'll provide. Tony Morita in his book on Ruth says, God's sovereignty is not a license for human inactivity. That's not trusting the Lord. That's testing the Lord. So as we affirm that God really does have it under control, we don't just say, all right, show me. We say, because I love you and because I trust you, I can do what you've asked me to do because I'm not afraid that you're not going to pull through. I can act boldly, even if I'm like INTJ on the Myers-Briggs thing, even if like my flesh doesn't say that I like love confrontation, like I can do hard things because I know that God will come through for me. And so that's what Ruth and Naomi are showing us. We should work out of an overflowing, thankful trust in how God has already worked and still promises to work in our lives. So we should see that there. God is sovereign, but they are not on the couch. They're out obeying. So number two, when Ruth finds Boaz at the threshing floor, she finds him, and it would be easy to overlook this, I think. She finds Boaz in a place of satisfied joy. And I think we can learn something from that as believers. So let me tell you a little bit about the threshing floor, because not a lot of us thresh. We're not really threshers, so we kind of need some cultural context. So the threshing floor was the place where you took your grain after you planted your grain and grew your grain and prayed for the rain and the rain came and you harvested the grain. You took the grain up to the threshing floor. A lot of times there was a place where they would find rocky soil or like a rocky surface without soil, really, up at the top of a mountain, maybe think like Annapolis Rock, where you could be like exposed to the wind. So they would take the grain up there, and they would know when the windier time of the day was. Often in this uh, climate, it was near the end of the day, the evening, the nighttime, like if you've ever been out west near Vegas, and those winds really like come in around dinner time. That's what they're doing. So they're taking the grain up, and whenever they get up there, they can sort the good stuff from the bad stuff. So they get it up there, they throw it on the rocky, uh, the rocky surface so there's no dirt in it, They take the pitchfork in, they throw it up in the air, and the bad stuff is really light. So the wind blows the bad stuff away, probably like onto someone's car, and they just wash their car. It's probably really annoying for somebody. It has to go somewhere. But then the good stuff falls back down, and that's what they keep. So the threshing floor was the place where people brought the harvest together and sorted the good thing from the bad thing. So during harvest time, a lot of people would get together at these places, and they would do this work, kind of taking stock of what they had been able to grow over the season. And then at the end of the day, after they had just threshed till their heart's content, they would eat some really good food, and they would probably have a sip of wine, and they would have a party because the harvest had come. And can you imagine the kind of party that threshers would be having around that time? Because remember last week, We talked about the whole reason this story is happening. This story happened. This whole journey and then like reverse journey is happening because there had been a famine in the land. There had been like a super famine in the land. Like Panera ran out of bread, which apparently happens, kind of famine. Super famine. So now there's a harvest. And they had felt the pain of hunger. But now they get to fill their bellies. Can't we identify with that right now? that first birthday party, that first get-together, those people you haven't seen in so long, how much more of a rager do you want to throw whenever you haven't seen people in so long? How much more do you actually want to get together when it's been restricted from you? So Boaz gets together at the threshing floor with that in mind. Everybody's working, everybody's celebrating, and he literally, after eating a filet, drinking a couple sips of wine, he lays down, and his belly is literally full of God's blessing. And he's surrounded by the grain that's God's provision. And he's laying at the foot of the heap of grain, one, so that thieves don't get to it, because his work probably isn't done. But two, as he lays there and looks up at the stars, he can know just in his five senses that God has provided for him. And imagine how good you sleep when you know and you can sense that God is all around you, and you're just joyful. You have what you need, and you didn't, but now you do, because God has given it to you. And I think for us, when we believe, when we actually rejoice in the book, when we actually like pull out things from this book, and God shows us things from this book that remind us of who we are, and what he's done, and our reasons to be joyful, we can sleep like Boaz. We can actually be full of God's joy and blessing. And we can actually rest in it and enjoy it. A lot of folks in the faith would say, when you want to live the holy life, you need to deny yourself of things that would give you pleasure. But I don't don't think the Bible says that. I think the Bible says that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. And God has said, I've made a universe for My ultimate glory, but also for your enjoyment. So, as you love me, you can enjoy the things that I've made as long as you don't replace me with that thing. So, here's Boaz just doing what we should be doing just resting and actually enjoying God's provision. I also think it looked a little bit like a couple weeks ago what we talked about in creation on day seven God surrounded by all the things that he has created and provided. And just resting. Believer, when's the last time you rested? And I don't mean like just not been awake. I don't mean just like not put anything on your calendar. But when's the, time, when's the last time you said, I know that God has provided, will provided, so I can take a break. And yeah, I have stuff to do. But I trust him. So I will rest in faith right now. Believer, when's the last time that's happened for you? It's, it's an incredible blessing when you get a chance to do that. So here we see Boaz beautifully resting at the threshing floor. And then we see Ruth coming in with the bold act. Here's here's kind of like where we're really getting to the meat here. Ruth's bold act here shows that she has faith that God is who he says he is. And she does that by quoting the scripture back to Boaz that Boaz told her just a couple minutes ago. Verse 9 Whenever she comes there and uncovers his feet, wakes him up, talks to him, she quotes a scripture back at him that says, I believe that God is going to do this. She says, verse 9, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. It would be easy to kind of like get it twisted here, but she's replacing God in that scripture with Boaz. And Sometimes that should be like, you know, red flag, idolatry alert, but that's not what she's doing here. She's saying, Boaz, I believe God is going to use you to fulfill the scripture in my life. So will you do it? She boldly comes to him at midnight and says, will you be the fulfillment of the scripture in my life? Will you meet me where I'm at? Will you meet my needs because I have them? Will you be the hands and feet of Jesus to me? Kind of puts them on the spot a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> so Ruth is really putting herself out there because this could have gone wrong in a lot of ways, and in a lot of like painful, permanent ways. So Boaz one could have just ignored her and kind of like brushed her off. She could have been misunderstood by Boaz because you know it's it's dark and these are places of of celebration and not everybody is a believer. So she could have been mistaken for a a woman with another motive. And then that could have led to, like, if Boaz is not a man of character, that could have led to really terrible things. But if Boaz just really misunderstood, it could have led to public shame for Ruth. And that could have made things so much harder on her and Naomi if she had received this label. Um, Yeah. And maybe she could have even been mistreated by Boaz or one of the other men if they'd had too much to drink. I'm sure she understands the risks. I'm sure she's counted the cost. But this plan is hinging on one thing. Naomi's boldness, Ruth's boldness, it hinges on the character of Boaz. Is this man as good as we think he is? If not, we're really in trouble. And I think you can maybe see where I'm going with this here. So this is where we're going to wrap it up. Point three is we're going to look at the faithful redeemer. And we're going to see how Boaz looks a whole lot like Jesus. So how will Boaz respond? How do you respond when somebody wakes you up in the middle of the night? Are you just like polishing off your little angel halo and getting ready to bless somebody if, if they wake you up in the middle of the night? I'm not. I, one, if you can wake me up, like, good for you. I'm a really hard sleeper. Number two, like, you're going to get the flesh before you get the spirit <laughs> if you wake me up. But with Boaz, we just totally don't see that. An evangelist in the 19th century named D.L. Moody is attributed with this quote. He says, character is what you are in the dark. Character is what you are when nobody's looking and there's no chance to get likes and reactions. Character is what you are when you know probably no one else is going to notice. That's when the real you's coming out. So Boaz is right here in the dark and we see who Boaz is. He responds in a way that is humble, in a way that sees God working in Ruth, and in a way that is truly compassionate. So here we are. We're going to hit the gas here. He was humble, literally resting in the middle of God's provision. And then somebody wakes him up and says, bless me. (laughs) And he's like, no, these are my blessings. Have you ever felt like that? I'm blessed by God, but you can't have it. Because I'm not sure that he'll give me another one. Boaz doesn't do that. Boaz is secure in God's provision for him. Boaz doesn't need to worship comfort. Boaz doesn't need to hoard God's blessings because he's really believing in him. So he's humble because he's willing to consider her request. He sees God working in her. Verse 10 says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first." and that you've not gone off after young men, whether poor or rich. So Boaz is not put off by the boldness of Ruth. Boaz is somehow delighted by her boldness. He gets joy out of seeing people step out in faith. He's seeing a young woman say, I need help, and I think you're going to be God's hands and feet to me. He loves it, and he is just spontaneously delighted in the middle of the night, when someone is finding and following Jesus. Believer, when you see evidence of grace in other people's lives, when you see organically, unprompted, somebody finding and following Jesus, does it make your heart happy? Does it excite you when you see somebody actually just following God? Boaz is excited when he sees Ruth following God. So then he responds compassionately to her. In verse 11, Boaz comforts Ruth by just saying... Do not fear. It's not complicated. He didn't have to have like the perfect thing to say. He just said, you don't have to be afraid right now because chances are her blood pressure was not low. (laughs) She had really been, I mean, she really put herself in a vulnerable spot and like, this is the spot in the spot, like this is the point where it really could like all go sour. And he says, it's okay. You don't have to be afraid anymore. Then he promises quickly to do everything she's requested, which probably includes not just saying yes to the dress. It includes, like, taking care of family members. It includes lifelong commitment. It includes changes to, like, your property and their property and this whole new relational dynamic. He says, yeah, I will redeem you. But he's honest about a problem at the same time. Verse 12, there is a redeemer nearer than I. And so he doesn't sweep complicated things under the rug, but he says, I will make sure that you're taken care of. And if this guy won't do it, then you have my word right now, instinctively in the middle of the night. No, I don't need to talk to somebody about it. I'll make sure you have what you need. So he makes that promise right there. And then verse 13, he makes sure that he honors her and this risk that she has taken by protecting her dignity. He cares about character. And so he says, lie down till the morning. He prevents her from taking that risk of being noticed as she leaves. And this work of redemption, even though he doesn't know if he's going to be the one, this work of redemption just starts right then, ASAP. And he says, God, however you're going to use me, and I don't even know until tomorrow, I'm willing to be used. He just puts his yes on the table. So this story does go on to end beautifully, but I have like nine seconds, so I'll just like warp speed it for you. So the book of Ruth, I want to show you the heartbeat, but you kind of need to know how the story wraps up, because it's kind of like watching everything except for like the last 10 minutes of a really good movie, and then you're like, eh, got to make dinner. So ah, go back and read Ruth chapter four. It's beautiful. You need to see how it all comes together. You need to see how this story fits in God's redemptive plan for the whole universe. You need to read the wedding. You need to read about the kid that comes. You need to read about the storyline and the bloodline that comes out of this. That is the main point. But let me just summarize it for you and let me make a different point. So, Ruth, the book of Ruth, ends by Boaz literally paying the price to redeem Ruth. And then they get married and they become a tag team channel of blessing for Naomi, who needs someone else, who can't provide for herself. They become a channel of blessing even for Ruth, even as she's willing to serve. She gets blessed in the middle of it by the Lord giving her conception, by the Lord giving her a son and a bloodline, and she couldn't do that on her own. They become a channel of blessing for Israel because Israel was in a place in the time of the judges that was desperate, weak, rebellious, sinful, doing right what was right in their own eyes. So they go from that position to on their way to having a true king. To having the great king through the line of Ruth. And they become a tag team channel of blessing for us. Because out of this bloodline and out of this hot mess that Israel was in the Lord is bringing Jesus out of this from an outsider that doesn't look like them talk like them smell like them speak the language from a place of terrible sin shame and rebellion that they probably don't want to like post about on Facebook it's not really like the most presentable part of their life from all of that God is bringing Jesus and God is bringing redemption for me And God's bringing a reason for us to covenant together and worship every single Sunday. Out of all that, God can use anything in your life. Even that thing. Even the thing you never want to tell your life group about. God is a redeemer. And you truly can have hope in that. So really, go back and read chapter 4. It's so good. But I want to close with this. In a sense, the entire plot of the romance and of this redemption story hinges on the character of Boaz. I know I already said this, but I really want you to know this. If Boaz is not who they think he is, then they're about to have a hard time. But they stepped out in faith because it seemed evident to them that Boaz was a man that was the same all the way to the bone. The plan depended on him and him alone. And they knew that, so they stepped out in faith. And so for every single one of us here, in our hearts, the book of Proverbs says, a man determines his way, and you should do that. You should have a six-month plan. You should have a three-year plan. You should have a five-year plan. It should freak you out because there are a lot of variables. But at the same time, as we plan, the end of the verse says, the Lord establishes our steps. So as we plan, as we strive together to make wise decisions about the future, we have to know that it all depends on the goodness and provision of Jesus. We have to know that. We have to more than know that. We have to actually believe that. Because we can educate ourselves and ask for like 45,000 opinions of everybody and try a new methodology but unless we come to the Lord and we just say, I don't got it, you have to step in. You have to intervene. Unless the Lord finds us there, we're not where the Lord wants us. I'll close with this. Pastor Marita, in his study on Ruth says, Believers are called to live in such a way that everything depends on the kindness, the integrity, and the redeeming power of the Lord. To the extent that we know we can trust him, we'll take risks for him. And we will advance the kingdom. But to the extent that we have doubt about how good he really is, we're often betraying that we have a small view of Jesus. A suspicion deep down that he may not actually come through for us. That he can't be trusted to actually do what's best for us. When the chips are down. When we see Jesus as he really is, the perfect Boaz, perfectly kind and ready to redeem, only then are we going to be people that joyfully lean on his character. Only then are we going to live in a way that will only make sense if he really is who he says he is. That's what God is calling us to, in his image as his people on his mission, he's not calling us to have it all together. He's not calling us to have some social media-ready Christianity. He's calling us to be like Ruth and to lay down at his feet and to say, I don't have it all together. Would you spread your wings over me and redeem me? Not just the first time, but even Today. Would you meet me in my weakness, Lord? And would you protect me? Would you shelter me? Would you empower me for the next step? Because I really believe that you can do it. I really know you're that good. And I really know that if you do, it won't be about me anyway, because you're going to get so much glory from making me into your image. Do we really believe that this morning? If we don't, You don't have to feel guilty about it. The Lord is ready and waiting, and we can just ask him for help. Would you pray with me? God, we just, we give you thanks that you put beautiful stories like this in front of us to remind us of what really matters. God, we thank you that even greater than Boaz and Ruth, That you spread your robes of righteousness over us. That you make us your people. And you bring us out of darkness. You bring us from a far country. And even though we can't pass the citizenship test, you carry us to your table. God, we don't deserve that. Would you just hear our offering of thanks to you? Would you just help us to make much of you because of that good work that you do? Would you make us people that really lean on you and really step out in faith when we feel led? Would you make us identify with this psalm when it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob and whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them. The same God that keeps faith forever and who executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. God, would you make us like that? God, would you help us to worship you for being that? Would you help us to look to you right now? In your name, amen.